All right, we'll get started now. I'll say the blessing real quick, and then we'll get into Genesis 13. Barukata Adonai Loheinu, Melech Haolam, Asher Kishanu, Bemisvotav, Vitivanu, Laosok, Bidivrei, Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, sovereign of all, who hallows us with mitzvot, commanding us to engage with words of Torah. <clears throat> okay, so Ashley is going to be reading through Genesis 13 real quick, and then we'll get into the content for that. And after that, we're actually going to do 14 as well, up to 17. Up to, yeah, up to verse 17. <clears throat> so this is Genesis 13 to start. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and everything that belonged to him and Lot with him to Negev. When Abram was very rich in livestock, silver and gold, he proceeded by stages from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar that he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of Adonai. Now Lot, who was going with Abram, also had sheep and cattle and tents, so that they set, so that the land could not support them living together because their possessions were many, and they were not able to stay together. So there was quarrels between the shepherds and Avram's livestock and the shepherds of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land then. So Avram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between me and you or between my shepherds and yours, since we are, we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Please separate yourself from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. And if to the right, then I'll go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the whole area surrounding the Jordan was well watered in its entirety before Adonai destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like Adonai's gar garden, like the land of Egypt, till you come to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself the whole area surrounding the Jordan. Lot journeyed to the east and they separated from each other. Avram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the valley, and he moved his tent from place to place near Sodom. But the people of Sodom were evil, very great sinners against Adonai. After Lot separated himself from him, Adonai said to Avram, lift, your, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, to the north, south, east, and west. For all the land that you are looking at, I will give to you and to your seed forever." I will make your seed like the dust of the earth so that no one could count the dust of the earth. Then your seed could also be counted. Oh, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, then your seed could also be counted. Get up, walk the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Avram moved his tent from place to place and came and dwelt by Mamre, large trees, which are in Hebron, and there built an, al an altar to Adonai. <clears throat> Okay, so that was Genesis 13, and in this, in this chapter, we get the, the time where Abraham and Lot are just now leaving Egypt. They, they left after the whole incident with Pharaoh, and now uh, they're, they're going back the way that they originally went to Egypt, and they eventually get to the point where they, they feel they need to separate, and so that's what is mostly going on here in chapter 13. And at the start, in the first couple of words of chapter 13, it says Abraham went up, or it says Avram went up, which was his name then, but I, just for consistency's sake, I'm using Abraham the whole time. But so Abraham went up, and although it's literally true that Abraham went up from Egypt, since Israel is on higher ground than that of Egypt, it isn't necessarily just talking about the physical sense. We've We've talked about a lot of instances before where a certain event or a certain statement or teaching has to do with something in the physical present as well as uh, something something in the future or there's a another spiritual aspect of it that's different than or still related to the, the physical sense of it. And so <clears throat> Abraham did go up from Egypt physically, but one of the one of the great Jewish called Zohar explains that it carries uh, one of these spiritual senses as well, where Abraham ascended from Egypt uh, also uh, from the land of Egypt, he ascended, but he also ascended from the wickedness and the evil ways of Egypt as well. And so he, Zohar takes it to mean that he 
<clears throat> he went up out of the land of Egypt, but he also went up out of the ways and the wickedness of Egypt. He left, he left this evil land that he was in for a time due to the, the famine that we saw in the previous chapters. <clears throat> and this situation actually puts Abraham once, once again into contrast with all of the all of the important men who have come before him that we've studied so far. So for Adam and for Noah, unlike Abraham, they did not really emerge unscathed from their, uh, from their encounters with wickedness or their own personal lapses with sin. Because when, when Adam had the situation with the tree of knowledge and Noah with his wine, they, we don't necessarily get, so one thing we want to keep in mind when we're reading about this is that it wasn't just Abraham, Sarah, and Lot on this journey out of Egypt. We have to remember that just because these three are the ones specifically mentioned doesn't mean that they don't that they didn't have a ton of other people with them because we are told that they took a lot of people with them from Egypt. They have a lot of animals and possessions from Egypt too. And in addition to that, they when they left Haran, they they already had a certain amount of people that they took with them from there as well. What is typically translated as the souls that they made in Haran, which actually, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is soul in the singular, which might mean the might be referring to sort of a nation that they built or a collective group of people that they built while they were in Haran. And so uh, we have Abraham, Sarah, and Lot, and all of the people, all of the many people that they had with them on this journey out of Egypt. And so with this situation with Abraham and Lot's people quarreling with each other, the, it, was, it was a lot of herdsmen that were told because Abraham and Lot both had a, a large amount of wealth and had a lot of people and a lot of cattle within their estates that they were taking with them. A lot of, a lot of it we, we saw came from Egypt when, when they were leaving Egypt. They, they gave them gifts and people and animals in order to get them to, to leave and to, to sort of make peace after the incident with Sarah. And so uh, when this quarreling starts between the herdsmen the Jewish sage Rashi, he explains that Lot and his herdsmen, because Lot is, is pretty, pretty evil. He's, he's not a very upright figure in the Torah a lot of the time. <clears throat> and so Rashi explains that Lot and his herdsmen, they would graze their animals on other people's fields, uh, namely Abraham's when they were traveling together. And so Abraham's herdsmen, they confronted Lot with this and Lot essentially responded by saying that God promised the land to Abraham. And since Abraham didn't have any descendants, then it was ultimately Lot's land as well, because Lot was in some way Abraham's only heir since, since again, he was still childless at that point. <clears throat> That's what Rashi explains was the, the conflict between the, the herdsmen of each household and <clears throat> The, the verse makes clear, though, when it, in its phrasing and what it's talking about, that though Abraham didn't necessarily own the land yet, it still belonged to the Canaanites and the Perizzites at that point. He, he made, the verse makes clear that uh, Abraham doesn't own it. And so it, uh, even, even if Lot was the heir, or the, the rightful heir at that time to Abraham's estate, it, he wouldn't still own the land yet as a whole because Abraham didn't even own it yet. So he couldn't necessarily really pass it down. <clears throat> and uh, we see that Abraham faced with this strife and this conflict, he decided that the best and the most peaceful, peaceful course to go would be to just separate his household and Lot's household and go their separate ways for a time or, or just indefinitely. I don't think he says for a certain amount of time. <clears throat> and this is significant for this specific situation here in Genesis 13, but 
again, it's another instance where something has multiple different meanings or places in scripture, but we're going to see a similar, we're going to see this similar structure later on in the Torah and essentially all throughout history, because later on in the Torah, we see that God will forbid Israel from <clears throat> allowing Moabites or Ammonites into God's assembly. And they were, they also weren't allowed to <clears throat> to marry or mingle with any Moabites or Ammonites. And this is significant because Moab and Ammon, they were two sons born to born to low later on in Genesis out of the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters. And so when God is forbidding Israel from mingling with the Moabites and the Ammonites, he is, it's a, it's a forbidding of them to mingle with, for Abraham's descendants to mingle with Lot's descendants. And so when, when God commands them to be separate from Moab and Ammon, he's, he's speaking about his descendants. And so we see in both cases, Abraham, or in the later case, Israel separating from the unrighteous Lot or Moab and Ammon. And so this is another instance of that. I think Tom Bradford in the Torah class podcast calls it the reality of duality, where something can carry with it both a physical sense and a spiritual sense. Pretty much essentially every word in scripture has that aspect to it in some way, um, or, or it can carry with it a, a meeting for one specific time, but it can also foreshadow things of a later time or be part of a, a cycle that keeps repeating throughout history in different ways. And so with the, with the topic of Moab and Ammon and bringing up the idea that God forbade Israel from mingling with them, this, this kind of gets into a, a dicey issue that I want to jump into a little bit and it brings into a question that that might be a little bit troubling to us but I don't think has to be troubling to us because we can ask the questions what does it mean that no Moabite or Ammonite is allowed to enter God's land or assembly and what does it mean that they're not allowed to be among God's people and for this I want to look at a well-known example of this this mingling that goes on and that would be Ruth. And so Ruth, we're told she was a Moabite, but if she was a Moabite, then we could ask, wouldn't that, wouldn't that have to mean that she shouldn't have been allowed to be a part of the assembly of Israel, which means that uh, she shouldn't have, she shouldn't have been allowed. And therefore she wouldn't have been in the, if, if she, if she hadn't been allowed, then that would have, that would have prevented the bloodline that brought about King David and that eventually also brought about Yeshua, our Messiah. And so I think we've talked about this a little bit already, the idea of foreigners joining Israel, but when a foreigner converts and they join themselves to Israel, accepting Israel's same God and their same Torah and their same religious system, then they become as if they're a native born Israelite. And for this, I want to also look at Exodus 12, 48 to 49, real quick. So let me get to, let me get there. Okay, so this is Exodus 12, 48 to 49. <clears throat> and it's talking about the festival of Passover and the rules for it. If a foreigner staying with you wants to observe Adonai's Pesach, all his males must be circumcised. Then he must take part and observe it. He will be like a citizen of the land or a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person is to eat it. The same teaching is to apply equally to the citizen and to the foreigner living among you. <clears throat> and so in that passage, specifically talking about the rules for Passover, we see that God declares that the foreigner among Israel who decides that they want to celebrate Passover, and they also accept the sign of circumcision that he commands for his people, they will become as if a native of the land. And this this principle applies, I'm pretty sure, essentially all throughout scripture and the Torah and uh, for, for anyone who's not a part of Israel, because, uh, and, and, and we see that when God rejects and restricts the Moabites, the Ammonites, uh, any of the other ites that he took issue with and 
also the Gentiles, essentially anyone who wasn't born an Israelite or Jew, when he rejects them from his people, it's only as long as we remain in our foreign identity, I guess. And we've already read Romans 11 multiple times now, where we see that we're grafted into the Jewish covenant to become a part of God's assembly. And as we see throughout both the Old and the New Testaments, we were not, I, I mean, I would, I would want to be checked on this to make sure that I'm not speaking wrong on this, but I don't think that we are or are supposed to be Gentile members of God's assembly or God's Gentile members of God's people. Because when we accept God's covenants and strive to follow what he commands for us, we become a part of God's people in the form of Israel. And so I don't think, I think it's, again, check me on this, but I think it might be an oxymoron to say a, to say Gentile follower of God. Like, I don't think, I don't think the two can really exist together because when you're a follower of God, you become one with Israel, you become a part of Israel. And so when you, if you're, if you're following God, if you're joining yourself to God, you're inevitably and inseparably becoming as if a native born Israelite, putting yourself under the same, the same covenant, the same commandments, the same, everything as if it was as if you were a native born. And so I don't, I don't think the two are really separate, or I don't, I don't think you can really have the two, uh, the two together, Gentile and believer, because you don't, you, you leave behind your Gentile identity when you, when you start to follow God. And again, I will also mention that one thing I'm, I am pretty certain on is that there's only one covenant and there's only one assembly of God's people in the words of those passages that we looked at, uh, and that there's not separate Jewish and Gentile covenants. There, there's not a, a Jewish covenant for the Jews as we think of, or as, as we, as we tend to typically think of with the ritual and the, the, those air quote weird laws that we, we weren't raised in and stuff like that. And then there's one covenant over here for the Gentiles that don't involve all these traditions and stuff. No, it's, it's one covenant for Jew and for the for foreigner who wants to come into the covenant and essentially convert to be a natural born Jew. <clears throat> There's one covenant for both. We both, we have to follow all of the laws there. There's not just a certain set for Jews and a certain set for Gentiles. And if we want to follow God, I think we have to make a similar statement to Ruth declaring that the Hebrew God is going to be our God and that his people is going to be our people. And, um, and then we, in doing so, we have to forgo our old roots and our old identity to attain a new one as a part of God's people. Uh, to substitute terms in that apply directly to most of our situation, I know for all of us here right now and probably the majority of people who are listening to the recording, I think that the, the most significant Ruth type statement and joining of Israel and God's assembly that we can do, I think, I think our form of your people will be my people and my, your God will be my God involves us giving up Jesus and accepting Yeshua. And so I think, I think that when we, when we start to wake up a little and realize that a lot of these things are, or a lot of these things in, in the Christian church and modern theology are not grounded in scripture. And we begin to see the truth in the Torah and in the Jewishness of the new Testament. I think that inevitably requires us in, in a way to give up Jesus and trade him for Yeshua. Uh, Jesus being the old gods, I guess, of our Moabite, lands in the in the example of Ruth and accepting Yeshua and the, the Hebrew God <clears throat> and I think that's I think that's something that we that we need to do along along this process okay any 
questions or anything so far? Any additional comments, anything to add? Okay, so we'll continue on then. After the, after this side note here, and when we were originally talking about in, in Genesis 13, we have Abraham and Lot separating. That's what got us down that, that rabbit hole that I wanted to talk about. But after deciding that their separation was necessary, Abraham gives Lot the first choice of the land. And he explains that he would take whichever land Lot decided he wouldn't choose. And so Lot, uh, being he, uh, he chose wealth over morality and in doing so he chose the land in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah before they were destroyed and at this time they were still they were still very wicked cities this this whole the whole region that Lot uh, decided he would go to was was extremely wicked they were known for their cruelty and their their corruptness and so the, the sages explained that he, he may have thought that he would just reside in the land and let it not really have an effect on him, as a lot of us tend to do many times. But as it often goes, he was wrong and he was further corrupted by the land and the people and corrupted further beyond what he already was, because as we talked about a little bit earlier, he, he, was, not, he was not a very upright man. And he has a lot of quarrels with Abraham because of that. <clears throat> and we were told that prior to the, the desolation and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, this land that Lot went to to pick, it was so desirable to him because it was, it was on the Jordan River and near where the Dead Sea is today. And that land was once, the, the Torah says, as fertile and as rich as the Garden of Eden. And so he looks at this land, he sees it, he wants it because it could bring about wealth and uh, riches for him. And it ends up, it, it ends up not really doing anything that he hoped for because it corrupts him further. And he, he has a lot of troubles when he's living there. And then eventually the entire, that entire region gets destroyed and replaced with just desolation in its place after God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And additionally, when it's explaining where Lot went, we are told that Lot journeyed from the east, it says, when he's leaving Abraham. And if you'll remember, we talked a few lessons ago, maybe actually one of the first ones, I think, about how the east is always, you, or it's, it's usually pretty significant in scripture. And going east, a lot of times will represent moving towards righteousness or towards godly living. And so here where it says Lot traveled from the east, he's traveling away from the east. It's, it's, it means literally that he, he went west, but it's also indicating that Lot was removing himself from God and he was, uh, in a sense, leaving righteousness. And this is... This what? is Lot's journey to the east. Lot journey to the east? Yeah, this is Lot journey to the east and they separate from each other. I don't think that's right. Hold on, let me look at an interlinear. Because I think I I think I actually looked at the word and it said, mm, oh, I don't remember the. So the word for east is kedem, and I think it said me kedem. And if me is attached to the beginning of a word, it means from. Whatever. So this maybe says this says whole plan Jordan and Lot journeyed from the east. So maybe this one's just where did it? So work? let me find the interlinear real quick. So what verse is that? Um, yeah, 12. thirteen or no eleven. Set out toward the east. Why does it say so? Lot journeyed eastward, it says. Uh, wait, let me pull it up. Journeyed out east. Yeah, so, okay, so, yeah, if we look here in the, so on Blue Letter Bible, it has the, what it actually says there, the root of it, and then, like, the transliteration. Mm -hmm. And so, 
what it says there is and and journeyed lot me kedem it doesn't say lot journeyed kedem which is east i think it says lot journeyed me kedem and if me is attached to the beginning of a word that means from or there's there's also a separate word from if, if it says mean that means all that also means from but me a word Which, me and then a word is just that attached to a word what what did you say because this let me see yours so the one on top on blue other bible on the app it's that is what it actually this says hebrew words yeah and then the middle or the the lower one the lower hebrew word is the root word of it and so this the top one is what it actually literally has written in the passage there and then the bottom one is what it um oh it does say Mikada. yeah because i can read it yes Mikada. Mm -hmm. and so yeah i'm i'm so pretty certain that it would be from the east and i i have a tendency to trust hebrew the, the kumash people who are very diligent with their well, hebrew <clears throat> so what is the prefix me so me just means from there's there's a separate word from you can you can also say mean it's just the the, the m letter and then the mm -hmm. n letter with the with the y vowel underneath the m mm -hmm. and mean also means from but most of the time most of the time from is just attached to the next word by just me and then whatever the word is. So if you said, if you want to say from, from Bethlehem, you would say me Beit Lechem. Okay. Or mean space Beit Lechem. Gotcha. <clears throat> and so, yeah, that's weird that in some that's, versions it has to the east because that's... that's that's, that's a totally different meeting. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, that kind of that's a very yeah. When you said that, I was like, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that would mean I don't know. That yeah, because they said like when they separated, because Auburn was like, oh well, if you go to the east, I'll go to the west. So that means that he went away from the east, and I was like, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe maybe they were trying to to look at. The geography of that region and figure out which way change the wording yeah i don't know mm -hmm. but Maybe yeah that would, the, if you're if you're a hebrew these. expert and you're listening to this please check us on that and or you don't even have to be a hebrew expert just check check for yourself make sure that this is right but i'm yeah me attached to the beginning of a word means from not to if it was if it was lee or le or la then that would mean to because when the L sound is attached to the beginning of the word, that means to, but me means from. So that's odd that it has that translation. I don't know why that might be. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, yeah, so, so we're told that Lot, he traveled from the east when he was leaving Abraham. And we said that the east is very significant because it represents righteousness. Um, and so it's indicating that he's, he's leaving the West or, he, or he's leaving the East and moving West, but it's also talking about him removing himself from God and leaving righteousness as well. And this is actually further confirmed by the great Jewish sages because they explain that the Hebrew word here that's used for East, which is Kadem, as we said before. It can also apparently mean the ancient one, which also further indicates that Lot was intentionally separating himself from God because God is the ancient one to usually as referred to in scripture. And, uh, and so they attribute, I don't know if this is an actual quote attributed to Lot or if it's just sort of a, something he might've said with his attitude, but uh, he essentially was saying, I want neither Abraham nor his God. And so he, he went west. <clears throat> and so I would have to think that that 
that I have to believe the Hebrew portion of that because <clears throat> Hebrew, I, it, it follows the pattern. Mm -hmm. It follows like the Hebrew grammar mm -hmm. is says what it says, but also the pattern and the story. Yeah, the pattern. Pattern fits it, of the east. Yeah, the significance, <clears throat> the pattern fits the Hebrew spelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know why it would be to the east because me they must have just in opposition. I don't know. They must have just misinterpreted it and yeah. translated it over on or something. Yeah, that's yeah, but it's strange. been studied. Yeah, like a day gone long time. Yeah, like a lot of scholars and stuff. I don't yeah. know how that would have slipped in. Or why. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh yes, so after after Lot he departs from Abraham. After that, God ends up reaffirming his promise to Abraham. And in, in doing so, he emphasizes that the land promised would be given exclusively to Abraham's own descendants from his own flesh and blood, which would, that it, it would come to him eventually. So he was reassuring him that he would have a direct blood son and that it would not just be Lot as his sort of adopted son, his, his nephew, Lot. And so God, he tells Abraham, he's going to give his descendants the land that he sees and that it would be theirs forever. And this promise, I didn't think about it until I stopped and read something about it, but this could be troubling on the surface because we, we have a lot of centuries and millennia throughout history where the Jewish people were exiled and essentially evicted from the land. And so the statement could be troubling if we, if we see it and assume that God is saying the Jews will always possess the land for all time and never be gone from it. But the, the sages and the, the scholars of the Torah, they, they interpret that this isn't necessarily a promise that the Jewish people are always going to possess or physically possess the land, but rather that the land would essentially always be destined for the Jewish people and the Jewish people always be destined for the land. And this would be another thing to check me on, but I'm pretty sure I've heard that even when the Jewish people resided in Israel, they didn't necessarily own it in a complete sense. And that essentially it was more like a lease from God because, um, well, I mean, I mean, God, God owns the whole earth, not necessarily just the, the land of Israel, but, uh, when the, the idea I think is that when God was giving this land to Abraham, it wasn't that they, they exclusively owned it separate from God. It was, it was more of a lease agreement where, uh, you, you uphold the terms of the agreement and you stay and you violate the terms of the agreement and you are evicted and you're removed. And so <clears throat> I don't think this passage should necessarily trouble us where we see that God says your people will be in the land or that your people will possess the land forever because I don't think it necessarily means that they will, they will physically be in the land forever, but just rather that it would it would be destined for them for, for all time. Additionally, God in continuing the promise of, or the promise to Abraham, he declares that Abraham's descendants would be innumerable like the dust of the earth. <clears throat> and so he, he assures Abraham that he will have descendants and that eventually they will become, they would become so numerous throughout all of history that they, they would just be, they would be just unable to count. <clears throat> and uh the the midrash one of the one of the great jewish works it actually elaborates on the statement further and that it explains that while it was on in in one way talking about the number of his descendants it is also talking about his descendants outliving everybody or out, outliving all persecution i should say because just as the dust outlives all all the people who tread on him or tread on the dust. Uh, so Abraham's descendants similarly would outlive all the nations that try to destroy them. And that is, that's something that we see that we see <clears throat> throughout essentially all of history. And um, 
I actually, so I brought up, I brought up this quote maybe two, two different weeks now, I think, and I haven't been able to find it all this time. And uh, I, I thought I found the person who said it at least last week, but I was actually wrong about it. And the quote I'm thinking of, it's by uh, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, and it's talking about the survival of the Jewish people. And uh, when he, in that quote that I was, I was trying to find, he said, uh, <clears throat> there, there's, there's no miracle that convinces me of God's existence more than the survival of the Jewish people. And the longer the, he, he said, and the longer the exile, the, the exile from the land, the, long, the longer the exile lasts, the, the more, the more lofty and the more amazing the miracle becomes because <clears throat> um, it's like it, the longer, the longer the, the Jewish people are in exile, the longer they're away and they still survive through it. It is, it's, it's even more spectacular, even more of a miracle, even more seemingly unlikely, but uh, it, it has to be through divine providence that it's happening. <clears throat> and one last thing for chapter 13 is that it's interesting and pretty significant that God commands Abraham to walk the land that he's going to be given. And so in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, this was actually a commonplace practice in the transfer or the purchase of land. Because when, <clears throat> when a person was obtaining new land, it was a usual practice for the new owner to walk the land prior to the transfer of ownership and so the the new owner they would they would walk it they would scout it out they would look at it all they would they would make sure it was all satisfactory and then they would they would initiate the the transfer purchase or whatever it was and so <clears throat> this commandment from god was very purposeful and very meaningful here it wasn't just it wasn't just an just a general statement, go out and walk around. And that's the end of what I have for chapter 13. So do we have questions or additions for that? Okay, with that, then I will read through chapter 14 again up to what was 17. verse 17. <clears throat> oh, uh, I don't, you want this? One? So this is I was going to say, it might change from the two. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so this is chapter 14 up to verse 17. Now it came about in the days of Am Raphael, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elazar. This one's a tough one to pronounce. Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim that they made war with Barak, king of Sodom, Birshah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela. This is Zoar. All of these kings joined forces in the valley of the Sidim. Uh, this is the Salt Sea. For 12 years, they had served Kedor Laomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedor Laomer came with the kings who were with him, and they defeated the Rephaim in Ashtarot Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Amim in Shaveh Kiryatim, Kiryataim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is beside the wilderness. Then they came again to En Mishpat, this is Kadesh. And they subdued all the territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela went out and they lined themselves up for battle with them in the valley of the Sidim against Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariat, king of Elazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they fell into them, and those who remained fled to the hills. So they took all of Sodom and Gomorrah's possessions and their food and left. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, his, and his possessions, and they left, as he was living in Sodom. 
Then a survivor came and told Abraham, told, told Avram the Hebrew, who was dwelling by the large trees belonging to Mam, Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eskol and the brother of Aner. They were Avram's allies. When Avram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he rallied his trained men, those born in his household, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Don. Then he divided his servants against them at night, and he defeated them and pursued them as far as Hovah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all of the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot and his possessions, as well as the women and the other people. <clears throat> okay, so in the start of chapter 14, we have this conflict here with the, the war of these nine kings. And so first, something that I wanna, that I wanna put out there before we get into talking about this war is that the, the Jewish sages, they actually identify this King Amraphel as Nimrod because the, it says that King Amraphel was the king of Shinar, which is actually the land of Babylon. And so the sages identify Amraphel as uh, Nimrod or as we typically say Nimrod and this is the same one that threw Abraham into the fiery furnace and kickstarted all of the all of the stuff with the Tower of Babel, and uh, he he brought about a lot of idolatry that went on. And so the Amraphel here, he's Nimrod, and the Kedor Laomer that we see, he the sages actually identify him as Elam who is the son of Shem, the son of Noah. And so he's two generations down from Noah. And uh, he actually ruled in a nation called Elam because it was, it was from him. He was the ruler of Elam. But they, they take on different names for this story for, for a reason I didn't really see explained. And so in this time period, we see that Kedor Laomer, who he said is Elam, son of Shem, he was the king of the land of Elam, and he was very powerful at the time, and he had a very extensive rule. And so for the political background, uh, expanding on it, he, he had previously conquered many different nations and kings, and he, he had them all pay tribute to him and submit to his rule. And so he ruled, he, he had an empire of his own kingdom as well as all these other kingdoms that he had conquered and were were now in a in a vassal state with him where they were paying him they were paying him tribute and they were uh they had to submit to him and we're told in the torah that this went on for 12 years until five of these kings or five of the five of these nations they banded together and they they stopped paying tribute to kedor laomer and uh we're told that these rebel kings they rebelled for another 13 years until Kedor Laomer he decided to put an end to it and he had three kings that remains loyal to Kedor Laomer they they backed him up and so we see this conflict with uh, Kedor Laomer and his three kings and the the five kings and nations that are rebelling against Kedor Laomer and so I have a chart of it. I will put it here and I'll share my screen for the recording. We so yeah, it says we have Tidal, the the king of the Goy, king of Goyim, but Goyim there. I, yeah, I looked on Blue Letter Bible and I looked, I clicked on the word for Goyim, and it actually came up as Goyim, meaning the plural form of Gentile or foreigner. And so he is, I guess in this case, it's a proper noun, unless we're interpreting it wrong, but it's, it's Tidal king of Gentiles, which maybe it's, maybe they're just taking a word and using it as a proper noun for a place. But I, I have to think, or have to wonder if there's some meaning to him being called King of Goyim beyond just it being the name of the place. <clears throat> so I'm not sure about that. That would be something to look into. I can look into it for next time, maybe see if there's any anything with that. And so uh, those are the rulers. We have 
Kedorla Omer, Amraphel, Nimrod, uh, Atrioch, and Tidal. And, and then for the, the rebel team with the, the five rebel kings, we have Bera, king of, king of Sodom, uh, which is where Lot lived. And we have Birsha, king of Gomorrah. We have Shinab, king of Admah, and Shemaver, king of Zavoyim. And then the fifth one we have is, he's an unnamed king of Bila, which is also known as Zoar. And so those are the, those are the sort of two teams that we have in the conflict here. Okay, so yeah, we looked it up and it says that some Bible translations leave the word goyim untranslated and treat it as the proper name of a country. And then it references this passage here. And so uh, I don't, I don't know if it's supposed to have meaning beyond just being the name of a place, but it seems odd that they would pick. And it actually doesn't mean Gentile. Goy, goy means nation. And so uh see the evolution of the, the king of so tidal king of nations because go it's plural there tidal king of nations but i wonder it could it have been a proper place at that time Maybe. or is it a king who rules over different that's a really places that's a really lame name for your country though it's just country mm -hmm. i don't know oh well we we can find Maybe we'll find an answer over time, mm -hmm. but I have no clue right now if it has any significance, but everything has significance. Well, yeah, yeah, everything's going to have, yeah. But so, so we laid out the combatants in this war now. And so during this war, the key battle is the one where Sodom is defeated because as we saw, Lot lived in the city of Sodom at the time and, uh, he and so he was he was there and we saw that he got taken away and the the invaders took him captive and the midrash notes that they actually took Lot captive specifically because of his relationship to abraham and it says that they caged him and they they boasted to themselves we've captured abraham's nephew and so if if this is true then it was a bit more intentional than than it appears to be on the surface. And the sages explain additionally that the specific reasons why Abraham was targeted in the form of targeting his nephew Lot, it was in part because they expected that the wealthy Abraham would pay a large ransom to free Lot or Lot. And so, and so that was part of it, but they explained that the major reason that they took Lot, according to Zohar, is because they were threatened by Abraham leading people away from idolatry and towards God. And this actually, I think, would make sense if uh, one of the one of the four kingdoms that were trying to squash this rebellion was uh, what's the name Amraphel, who was actually Nimrod. And so, with this conflict that he already had with Abraham in the past, it kind of makes sense that he he and his his three other allies would want to would want to do harm to Abraham because he already had encounters with Abraham where Abraham had threatened him in the form of leading people away from idolatry. And with all of this in mind, the, the sages also teach that God specifically brought about this war so that everyone would see Abraham win this victory, and, which would gain him respect and it would bring more people to follow his teachings. And so that's, a, that's an interesting, interesting idea about this war is that it was, it was specifically so that Abraham would win the war inevitably and he would be his respect and his reputation would be increased. <clears throat> and then something else we, we, we see that after this war happens, after Lot is captured, we're told that a fugitive is the, the Hebrew word there. We're told that a fugitive came to tell Abraham of the defeat of Sodom and the capture of Lot. And, uh, the the midrash it actually explains that the fugitive was actually og who is the the giant 
who is the king of Bashan later on in the Torah. And we, 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 see, we see Og a lot later on in the Torah and this nation that he leads, Bashan, is defeated by the Israelites and he's, he's ultimately killed by the Israelites. And uh, <clears throat> the Midrash explains that he was a fugitive because he had just ex escaped a different battle that was fought in under the same war that was going on. And it explains that uh, Og, he, he actually had an evil intention in telling Abraham of Lot's capture because the reason that he told Abraham about it is because he hoped that when Abraham heard about it, he would go to war with the kings in order to try to save Lot and that he would ultimately <laughs> die in the fighting, which would allow Og to take Abraham's beautiful wife, Sarah, as his own wife with, with Abraham dead and gone. And so he, uh, this, this giant Og, he did a good thing, but with bad intentions. And the Midrash explains further that God, he rewards for good and he punishes for evil. And so for this situation, uh, since, since Og told Abraham about Lot's capture, God rewards Og with long life because we, uh, we see that he lasts hundreds more years until Deuteronomy 3 when he's killed by Abraham's descendants. And that's actually what his punishment is for doing it with evil intentions. He, God rewards Og with long life for telling Abraham about it, but for evil intentions, he punishes him with uh, eventually his fate would be that Abraham's descendants would, would kill him in the end. And again, that, that ends up happening later on in Deuteronomy 3 when he gets killed by Abraham's descendants. And so that's an interesting bit that we don't get uh, when we, unless we look at the, the Midrashic sources that, that elaborate on that a little bit. <clears throat> and so Abraham, now knowing about the, the issue with Lot, he goes to war in order to save him. And it says that he takes 318 trained men of his household with him that were born in his household. And I, I think I read this in the Kumash as well. And I don't, I don't think it's a for certain thing, but some rabbis have actually suggested that the 318 he took with him only consisted of one person, that person being Abraham's faithful servant, Eliezer, who we're going to see later on in the Torah and in Genesis as well. And this seems strange at first, but if we actually... Mm -hmm. If we look at the numerical value of Eliezer's name, it's actually 318. Because uh, if if you don't if you don't know about it, every letter in Hebrew has a corresponding number, and so they don't have a separate they don't have letters and numbers. They just have letters, and each letter represents a number. And so every single word in Hebrew, every single mixture of letters has a numer numerical value of, to it, and so. Eliezer, who is Abraham's, Abraham's faithful, Abraham's righteous servant, his, the, the numerical value of his name is 318. And so the thinking is that it's possible that when it says he took 318 trained men, he actually just took Eliezer, who coincidentally has the, that exact same number as the numerical value of his name. And they, if that's true, they interpret it as being Eliezer was he was so righteous and he was so trained and he was so good that he was worth 318 men and so um, I, I don't know if that's true but if if it is that would be that would be that'd be a really interesting aspect of it because mm -hmm. uh, and that that's another instance where knowing the knowing Hebrew or knowing the Hebrew for a specific passage can add a lot of meaning to it and and also shows the fact that numbers are are never ever just coincidental or insignificant or just randomly chosen in scripture it pretty much every every single number in scripture it has a meaning for some reason and uh whether whether it was actually eliezer alone in this situation or not i think i think the 318 probably has some sort of significance involving him. I also think that the if it's just mm -hmm. him, that would definitely bring a lot of followers to God. 
Yes. Because yes, if it's, if it's, yeah, if it's two of them compared to 319 of them, if two of them could take down all of those kings with all of their men, then that would be a lot. Yeah. Because that's yeah, definitely that something was... that God has. There's other things <laughs> I just read about it in. I think it might have been judges where he made them like drink from the water and the way that they drink. He was like, no, you need to have all those other ones leave. So he had a smaller group. So it would be more. Miraculous yeah, that's he, true. Oh, yeah. I, I forgot them. about that because he he specifically says there that that's his reason for. Yeah, he said it's having too such many. a small army. Yeah. So yeah. he's like, we need to make it they smaller. Attribute it to something other than me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. I was. Oh, I lost it. I was thinking yeah. something, but I I went and lost it now. Oh, oh, I, I got it again. So I I wasn't originally gonna include it, but I, I read online that I think I think in that part of the midrash or wherever they talk about uh, wherever they talk about Abraham going to war. I don't think I don't think this was in reference to the Eliezer thing, but it says that Abraham and his forces, whether it was just Eliezer or 318 individual men, it says that when they went to war, they they got to like the battlefield or whatever, and they threw dust and sticks like towards their enemies, I think. And it said that when they threw the dust and the sticks, the dust turned to arrows and the sticks turned to spears. And then Ooh. along those same lines, whenever the whenever their enemies threw spears or shot arrows at them, it turned to dust and sticks. So that could be how two men could do it. Yes, that could be how two men could do it. So, yeah. And I think it's kind of ironic that he said, because God says that he's going to make them like the dust and then they use dust to Oh yeah, that's true. Hmm. (laughs) It's just kind of cool that they use dust. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's all... Pretty pretty cool information from where did the, that battle take place? Um, does it say specifically? Um, it just says that they pursued them as far as Dan. So it would have to be in so, Israel, right? Oh yeah, so they pursued them as far as Dan, which means yeah, I guess it is in the land of, well, at the time the land of Canaan. And but I wherever actually, Dan is at. I actually read in Kumash, I think it's in there somewhere, that they interpret that the reason he pursued them as far as Dan is because it's the land of Dan that they that Israel at one point made one of their major idols or uh, carved carved idols and they bowed down to it. And so the Kumash and the, the sages that they're citing explain that the reason Abraham only pursued them as far as Dan is because when he got to that location, he, since Abraham was a prophet, he saw, he saw ahead to that moment that that would happen. And he, he saw that his descendants would resort to idolatry in that same spot. And he, he felt that it was a flaw in himself. And so his, he was disheartened in that location. And so he stopped. And so that that's something additional that the Kumash but if that is actually the case if if the dust turned to arrows and you know what i mean mm-hmm. then it almost implies that the land itself bought for israel that's true and that actually happens a lot as well i, I mean obviously by god's mm-hmm. hand but mm-hmm. it, it that the land fought for its patriarch. Yeah. Yeah, that, I think that happens uh, a bunch of times too. Or I've, I've heard different stories throughout history. I think some of them are in scripture, but it, essentially where foreign rulers have come in, they've taken over Israel and then essentially mm-hmm. the land stops mm-hmm. producing. It, mm-hmm. it's, all, it's like only when the the jews are in israel and have control of israel that the land is fertile and produces as much as as much as it's supposed to and it's almost like the yeah the land is fighting back or trying to spit people out who don't Don't have right control over it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so that's that's interesting i i wasn't planning on 
talking about the the dust and sticks thing, but that cool. that actually let us down a I know pretty interesting. Yours led to hers, led to mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but um yeah, so that's that is that's what happened when Abraham first went to war. And uh, and so we see that with these men or man, if the Eliezer theory is true of the 318, uh, but I, either way with them, Abraham successfully wars with the marauder kings and he wins. And it says that he returns all the goods that were stolen by the kings and he gets his nephew Lot back and he rescues him. And uh, for now, for this week, it's happily ever after, but not not for long we'll see <clears throat> but do we have any other questions or comments or anything before we finish up for the day i'm good okay well we'll finish up for today and then next week we'll be getting into we'll be doing the rest of chapter 14 which is 17 to the end and then i think we'll probably do all of 15 as well Yes, there, there's a lot in 15. So we will do, we'll do the rest of 14 and all of 15. So thank you guys, and we'll see you next time.